This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to Mary Frances O'Connor, Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Arizona, about her book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Just finished reading your book, The Grieving Brain, the surprising science of how we learn from love and loss. So obviously this is all about grief and, and how the brain responds to grief. Um, and it's very much a neuroscientist's approach to grief in the brain. So I thought the best place to start, I mean, you describe uh, in, in terms of certain aspects of how the brain works with grief and it's split into th- maps, timing and closeness. So I'd just like you to walk us through that. And then maybe if I have a question, I'll interject. So our loved ones are so vitally important to us. It turns out they are as important to our survival as food and water. And for that reason, the brain devotes a lot of space, uh, you know, in the, in the neural systems to keeping track of our loved ones. Uh, so you can imagine how important it is to know when am I, where am I going to get food? When am I next going to eat? Well, similarly, I believe that the brain has adapted that to think about where are my loved ones and, and when will I see them next? For example, if I said to you right now, you know, where's your girlfriend or where's your, where's your spouse? You'd probably have a pretty good idea. And, and that is because of this internal mapping that the brain takes care of for us. So what's so unique and just devastating about the death of a loved one then is that our brain, if, if, if our loved one is missing, our brain is, is really trying to tell us, well, go find them. Go, they're out there. Go get them. Or possibly, you know, make enough noise, attract their attention and, and make them come back to you. But in the devastating circumstance and unusual circumstance of the death of a loved one, it isn't that they are lost. It is that there is no map. And that is very disorienting for the brain. That is not something it is prepared to understand. It's like suddenly arriving on a on a foreign planet. So when you think about it that way, uh, then I think you can think about these dimensions of space and time, right? So the the where are they and the when will I see them next? 
Well, what's so interesting is to think that there might be a third dimension that actually works in quite the same way, that literally the brain is encoding it as a dimension in a similar way to time and space. And that's the dimension of closeness. So when I say closeness, what I mean is you can think of, if I ask you the question, are you and your sister close? That's what I mean sort of by closeness. You you have some sort of intuitive sense of uh, how, how close the two of you are. Well, I mean, sometimes even in our language, we use similar terms for these dimensions, don't we? Which is so interesting, sort of like... Uh, in the book, I give the example of, of way out, right? You can say that that appointment is way out, meaning in the future. You can say, you know, the ball is way out in the field, meaning distance. But you can also say that someone is way out, right? Like they're not really close. It, it's hard to make contact with them psychologically, right? So that closeness dimension then, if we think of the difficulty that the brain has with losing the map, with there being no here and no now with the the person that we've lost, then I think in a similar way, there's suddenly no close. And that means that it's very difficult for us to understand why are they gone? Why can I not feel close to them right now? And, and so I think the brain really struggles to make sense of that and tries to use solutions that we might use if they were still alive. I think this is one of the reasons why some bereaved people just feel irrationally angry with the person who's died, which not everyone experiences, but I have really noted over time as, as I've interviewed bereaved people they will say, I know this is, I know this doesn't make any sense, but I feel so angry with them for leaving me. And that is how you might feel if they had left in the sense of they had disregarded your closeness and, and they weren't talking to you anymore. Well, I think in the same way the brain gets confused about time and space, it can also get confused about closeness and, and feel either angry with them and, and a sense of blame or the alternative, feeling very guilty when it isn't, you know, rationally makes sense. You didn't lead to their death. You didn't cause their death. But because that's how we might repair a relationship when someone is alive, I think the brain on some level maybe tries to do that and creates those emotions. So that sort of leads on then to something else that um, that sort of struck a chord with me when there's this common feeling that people have that when a loved one has died, they feel like still they're not gone and they'll be able to walk into the room at any any given moment or, you know, they expect them to come home at the usual time that they used to come. And often people say, oh, you know, and I know it sounds crazy rationally. I know that they're not with us anymore. But so you, you actually say that our brain, this isn't an unusual thing at all. We're actually wired up to, to think in this way. If you think about it from the perspective of what is it that we've, you know, what is it that we're missing when a loved one dies, from the perspective of the brain, it is actually that first there was a bond. So when we bond with our loved ones, right, whether that's our, our spouse or, or our child, even, even a best friend, really, the brain creates that encoded bond. And that then is what gets lost. But because of that encoding, the brain 
is really a prediction machine, isn't it, right? It's trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And one way that it does that is, well, I know that I have a bond with this with this other person. That means I have this deep-seated belief they will be there for me and I will be there for them. That's, you know, part and parcel of the encoded bond. And so when a loved one dies, the brain continues to use its predictions. So think of it this way, you know, on the first day that that your your wife doesn't come home at six o'clock at the end of, of the workday, it's not actually a very good prediction that she's died, right? You have thousands of days of experience and, and here's this one day or even two days or even 30 days or 90 days, right? It just isn't in comparison to this, this deep-seated belief. And, and I think that leads to a lot of uh, what people experience as irrational feelings. Our brain just tries to complete the prediction, complete the habit often. Uh, and, and what that leads to is we actually kind of experience them and also know when we consult our memories, we know that they're not there any longer. So this is tied up with sort of um, something that you mentioned is the notion of yearning and um, how our memories can be triggered. So could you tell me a bit about that, please? Yearning really is the heart of grief, I think. Uh, It's just that overwhelming desire to have things back the way they were or or to have your loved one back with you it's just such a such an intense experience and i really liken it to the motivation of of hunger or thirst because we know that having these close loved ones we're attached to is so important to our survival that that motivation you know our brain is really trying to encourage us to seek out our loved ones and spend time with them. And so, you know, it uses everything at its disposal, dopamine and oxytocin and and cortisol, anything it can to sort of motivate us to, to seek them out. And so this sense of yearning is just with us then for, for a very long time. And in, you know, and in moments is, is with us sort of forever because you know, just because time passes doesn't mean that this person isn't important to us still and that we aren't still aware that there's a loss or an absence. And I liked um, something that I read this. I mean, I think most people find it quite cute, which is pair bonding in animals. And so we can say this and, you know, we experience it instinctually, but you, you mentioned there some of the different hormones that are involved in this. But um, it's it's something that you, we can physically study, isn't it? It is fascinating idea. So these these little pair bonded rodents uh, that we get in North America and Canada, they mate for life, and so they, you know, once they have mated, it, it means they always prefer to be in the presence of their partner, and they raise their pups together and so forth, and. What I think is so interesting is the idea that we can actually see in their little tiny brains before that, you know, first time that they mate and after the first time that they mate when when then forever their behavior has changed. The proteins in their brain are actually folded differently in this, in this area called the nucleus accumbens. 
the the proteins around uh, their genes, the epigenetics, are actually folded differently. And it means that the number of receptors for oxytocin in this part of the brain are increased. And even more recent work, because this is such a burgeoning field, the, the neuroscience of grief, in recent work, even after the book went to press, there's evidence that there are specific neurons that fire as we approach our mate, right? So that's their sole job is to is to is to encode, is to is to qualify that that you are approaching your mate. And as the bond grows stronger over time, there are more neurons devoted to this specific activity. It just really highlights for me how important our loved ones are. Yeah, and so sort of carrying on from that, you mentioned hormones there. There's a lot of stuff, um, studies that you've been carrying out uh, using neuroimaging techniques on brains, which I thought was really fascinating. Could you tell us a bit about that? I really felt that grief might be something we could look at, again, in a very quantitative neuroscience way. And that seemed very unusual uh, when I first started this work about uh, 20 years ago or so. And I think we have come to a point where, you know, the the neuroimaging scanner, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI really does allow us to sort of peer into the brain in real time and see, you know, where is the blood flowing? And that tells us what neurons are firing. So, in trying to figure out how can we create a moment of grief for people who are in this sort of hospital setting, you know, in this very sterile environment, we actually asked them to bring photographs of the person who had died, as you might if you're telling anyone about a loved one that's that's passed away. And so we were able to scan these photographs and take words that they had used as they were describing their loss uh, and show them on goggles in the scanner so that the person is actually experiencing that wave of grief that is caused when we when we think of our loved ones, when we're bereaved, and especially in the first few years of being bereaved. And so by doing this, we can see what particular brain regions are, are activated in contrast to the, the person looking at a photograph of a stranger, say, for example. So it's still a person. It's a, it's a good contrast uh, because the brain is using similar regions that you would use for, for looking or for perceiving a human being, right? But what's unique is this grief over this relationship. And so what we find is partly that there are many, many parts of the brain that are involved. Grief is is very complex. And some of those are, are areas like the dorsal anterior cingulate that really seems related to pain or the salience maybe of pain. So e- emotional pain in this case, although also the salience of physical pain. And interesting, given I was just talking about the nucleus accumbens, a very surprising finding that came out of a 2008 study of mine was that when we looked at people who had the most yearning, right? So who were reporting to us that week to week, their intense yearning, that level of yearning was correlated with the amount of activity, of activation in the nucleus accumbens. And for for readers who are or listeners who aren't as familiar, the nucleus accumbens is part of what we call the reward network in the brain. But 
not to not to confuse people, not rewarding in the sense of, oh, this feels good, you know, because that's not something we expect as, as a person is looking at their loved one. But in that motivation way, I was talking about yearning. So this idea of, yes, I want to be with that person. Yes, I want to seek them out. Um, so reward in the more psychological sense of trying to increase the behavior, you know. So people who were having more yearning for their loved one when presented with an image showed more activity in this very specific region uh, compared to those who perhaps had adjusted more to knowing that they, they, they would not be able to predict that this loved one would be seen again on this earthly plane. I think, um, I think this was a, in a separate experiment, but there was, um, when you were showing the photographs, there was a, a heightened uh, association with the parts of the brain that involved in facial recognition. When you said, I thought that was really interesting. Isn't that fascinating? So it turns out facial recognition is a very specific and very important thing for human beings to do. And it's kind of a very, um, it's like a mini function, right? It, it, it's sort of able to be parceled up parceled out. And so we know looking at faces um, uses this fusiform gyrus area. We know that partly because sometimes people uh, have damage to this area of their brain and they lose the ability to distinguish between faces, for example. So as people are looking at the photo of their loved one, in contrast to looking at the photo of a stranger, where of course they're still looking at a face, but there's more activation in this facial recognition area when you're looking at a loved one. I think, again, sort of pointing out how important it is that we really cue in, oh, no, this, this is my one and only, right? I, I need to very carefully identify this is the one, not those other people, you know, out in the world that, that are not so important to me. Um, and I think that's why probably we see more activation in this region. So they're sort of more universal things, but of course not everybody responds uh, or copes with grief in the, in the same way. So there are several sort of distinct different types of response, aren't there? And what's interesting about this is I think it has been very helpful to me as a scientist to think about the difference between grief and grieving. So the vast majority of fMRI studies that we have to date are actually about grief. They are about that moment that just washes over you, the, the emotion that we think of with grief, with the thoughts and, and feelings that come with it. Grieving, on the other hand, is the way that grief changes over time right? So grieving necessarily is a trajectory. It has been very useful, I think, for people who are bereaved to understand this difference between grief and grieving as well. So this is part of why I, I find it helpful sometimes to talk about. But the point is that when we have grief, it is simply the recognition, the awareness of this loss. And that will be true Anytime we become aware of the loss, even years and decades after 
we've we've had the death of a loved one. That wave can still come over us. But grieving means that how we cope with that grief, uh, perhaps the uh, frequency with which that wave overcomes us will change over time. And so what we see is that there are some distinct patterns in, in this grieving trajectory. And this is some work done by George Bonanno at Columbia University, where across a just many, many studies now. He's looked at the way that bereaved people's experience changes over time, and we identify a few different patterns. So one of those is what we might call resilience. And so that is that for the majority of people who are bereaved, we don't actually lose the ability to kind of function in our life. That doesn't mean people don't experience sadness and suffering, but that they also are simultaneously able to experience pride and joy. And, you know, they can do things like get dinner on the table, you know, sort of just function in their day to day life. But there's another group of people, historically, we've called this complicated grieving, although now the term uh, that the DSM uh, uses is prolonged grief disorder. And, And so for this group of individuals, they experience elevated distress and and some very specific kind of emotional and cognitive responses, but that those don't change much over time. So they don't see the same increase in acceptance uh, that typically accompanies adapting, you know, to, to the, the death of a loved one. But, but the slight distinction I just want to, for, for listeners who, who might struggle with this, if you expect that you will never experience that wave of grief again, you will be disappointed. And you might think it means that you've done something wrong, that you're not grieving properly. But that's not what it means. It just means you've become aware of it. And so that's, I think, the the usefulness of the distinction. So have there been any studies carried out on perhaps what the differences of the the people that have the different responses are? I mean, is that something that's actually being studied yet? It is. And and actually, that, that study that I referred to before that showed the, the people who were yearning more had more nucleus accumbens activation, those individuals also, yearning is sort of the hallmark symptom of prolonged grief disorder. And so uh, what we see then is that people who have this prolonged grief disorder um, may show more nucleus accumbens activation And interestingly as well, this is one way we've been able to tease apart the idea that depression and PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder and prolonged grief disorder are actually distinct. So if we look at a study by Richard Bryant uh, from Australia, when he looked at individuals in the scanner, all of whom were bereaved, but some had post-traumatic stress, some had depression, and some had prolonged grief disorder, their brain region responses to sad faces uh, was distinct. And so we think there may be different neurobiology underlying these different disorders, even though, of course, you can have more than one disorder at a time. You can have prolonged grief disorder and major depressive disorder at the same time, just like you can have depression and anxiety at the same time. But nonetheless, if we if we look at those individuals differently, there's some indications then that there may be some different neurobiology. So was that um, also an imaging study? It was actually, yes. Are there any um, like common 
features uh, you said they're distinct are there any common features between these types of grief different types of grief depression and PTSD there are some similarities at a most basic level i think one thing that is true is the emotional reactions that people are having are really interrupting their day-to-day life. And so in each of those cases, although depression tends to be more around sort of sadness and guilt, prolonged grief disorder tends to be more around yearning and emotional pain. And post-traumatic stress disorder tends to be more about anxiety and, and fear and helplessness. Nonetheless, with each of those emotions that that people are are experiencing, they're having difficulty regulating them such that they can be loving toward their grandkids and get out to work and go to, you know, a friend's wedding and all those sort of typical things um, because of the intensity of their reaction. So with these the, these studies that we've, we've been talking about, the imaging studies, have we got anything coming up in the future, like anything that um, is a particularly hot area that's, that you'd like to talk about or like to share with us? I can tell you that uh, a former graduate student of mine, Saren Seeley, has done some remarkable work with what's sometimes called the default mode. And so this is when we just ask people to rest in the scanner. So there's no activity, they're not looking at anything, but just in this resting state, what parts of the brain, what networks of the brain are sort of simultaneously active? And there's some good research that in other uh, situations, people's resting state network connectivity looks different in something like depression uh, than in healthy controls. Well, the the study that uh, she has done, which is sort of under review at the moment, is uh, looking at bereaved people in this situation and finding that those who are having the most trouble grieving, those who might qualify as as prolonged grief disorder, your brain can be in different states, right? So you have a particular group of regions that are connected and then sort of your things shift and a different group of regions are connected primarily. And people with difficulty grieving, there was a particular set of networks and people spent more time in that particular state. Uh, So we call it dwell time, which I think is just such a tremendously helpful word. So they're dwelling for more time uh, than people who are adapting more resiliently. Now, I can't tell you, you know, this is still a very new area, so I can't tell you exactly why, and I can't necessarily even tell you what the mind is doing while their brain is sort of stuck in this state. But I think for many of us intuitively, it makes sense that part of the difficulty with grief is that you can get stuck in your thoughts or in the way you feel, and you just feel like you can't get out of it. And so uh, I think this is a really interesting, possibly useful future area for neurobiology research. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was psychologist Mary Frances O'Connor. If you want to know more about how psychologists and neuroscientists study grief, check out her book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Or to hear her tell me more about the grieving process, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast. Thanks for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. Find us on sale in supermarkets and news agents or in your preferred app store. Alternatively, 
do come find us online at sciencefocus.com. See you next time. Thank you.